Welcome to Brain and Avat. Uh, today we are joined by Mari Mikkela, who is at the University of Amsterdam, and we're going to be talking about hate speech. Mari, would you like to start with a thought experiment? Thanks so, thanks so much for, for having me and inviting me. Um, so there's a very famous um, idea that Stanley Fish, for instance, has um, articulated in a New York Times article from 2012 that there's a sort of this uncontroversial case of, of hate speech where we might uh, be personally sort of vilifying the speech, personally vilifies a group um, or members of, of groups. And everyone agrees that there's something, this is the sort of uncontroversial cases of hate speech. But Fish also goes on to say that apart from this, there's lots of, um, in fact, probably more of what he calls hard cases. And hard cases are cases, for instance, of Holocaust denial, um, where the suggestion is that for instance, the Holocaust was simply invented by um, Jewish people for nefarious financial air sort of ends, or some forms of kind of more genteel types of um, prejudicial expressions or casual racist expressions. And these sorts of claims, I mean, the thought is, well, where do we draw the line when we're talking about hate speech? Should these be included in the idea or the notion of hate speech or not? And the thought experiment that I wanted to start off with is thinking about um, Finnishness. So I'm originally from Finland. And let's just assume that the Finnish government does something extremely, extremely dumb, as a result of which we become the laughingstock of the world. Um, we're being sort of jokes are being made out of Finns, stereotypical jokes in, in newspapers. Um, we're being sort of um, portrayed as this slightly odd, odd creatures who, who go into hot rooms and drink lots of alcohol and, and so forth. And let's just assume also that I happen to be extremely offended by these types of ways in which Finns are being talked about. Now here, this is a sort of case of, of a hard case. Should we include this into the notion or the, should this fall under um, hate speech? And by virtue of the sort of stereotypical um, depictions of Finns and by virtue of my being offended by these, and, and I want to say in these cases that we should not, that stereotypical depictions um, of groups and offensiveness are not sufficient um, to render something an instance of, of hate speech. So I want to play devil's advocate here. Um, and I say devil's advocate because I agree with your position. Um, I'm a free speech absolutist. Well, I think it's probably more extreme than your position, but the point is I don't want any bans on free speech. But for a moment, let me play the role of, of someone who, who takes the opposite stance. You mentioned the Holocaust previously. Um, so in the beginning stages of the Holocaust, uh, before Jews were rounded up, there was a campaign uh, to depict Jews in certain stereotypical ways, uh, using um, caricatured faces with long noses and big ears um, and greedy, greedy individuals. The, the idea was to push a certain uh, view of Jews, which, which dehumanized them and later made it easier to, to have the widespread um, discrimination and ultimate extermination of Jews in Germany. So the argument will be this, it will be, well, if you allow those caricatures to start, look where it's going to go, look where it's going to lead. And so you should stop the caricatures, ban the caricatures. So my response is that I think there is a sort of a broader class, what I call prejudicial speech. And I think that hate speech is one type of prejudicial speech, but not all prejudicial speech is hate speech. So I think this kind of a case that you've, um, so the, the example that you have, um, I think there are possibly in the beginning, or at least in some, some permutations, um, it, does, it wouldn't qualify as hate speech in a narrow sense that I like to think about hate speech, but that doesn't mean that it would be any less problematic. So it might be another form, something like discriminatory speech um, or some other form of oppressive speech. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be sort of concerned about this type of speech. It doesn't mean that there's, there's nothing morally problematic about it, but not all problematic speech, I think, um, falls under hate speech. So I think that's a kind of a useful rubric, the idea of saying there's this broad category of prejudicial speech, and that out underneath that, that broad category, we're going to find particular kinds of speech that are egregious. 
And I think there's two kinds of questions we want to ask ourselves. The one is, how do we have a good concept for philosophical purposes to know exactly what we're, what we're talking about? And the other one is for legal regulation purposes. Uh, if I think about the South African context, we have a narrow definition of hate speech. We say it is the advocacy of hatred on one of four grounds, race, gender, ethnicity, and religion, and that constitutes an incitement to cause harm. So it's not it's it, it's narrower than Stanley Fisher's account in that it's not just the vilification of a group, because first of all, we say not all groups um, require the same levels of protection. We narrow it down to these four. Um, and we say also there must be a call to action. Um, in other words, you must be calling on third parties to visit a harm on one of these vulnerable groups. Now, we might say, in other words, there's, let's say, um, racist speech where you say hateful things about a particular racial group and it could be the Finns in this this case for example um but there's no call to action there's not saying you know whenever you find a Finnish person inside of a sauna you should set it alight so that we can expunge the world of the dirty Finns seems like there's a big difference there the other thing I think that's interesting to work out is whether all groups warrant the same kinds of protection and there's different ways we can cash this out the one is to think about let's say, particular racial groups. So you might think some people say, well, uh, white people ought to be treated differently to black people or to people of um, other kinds of racial, other racial categories. The other one is to say, no, no, race is the category. We don't drill down deeper into that. But we don't, for example, take sexual orientation into account. Um, we think that, you know, the, the history of violence against people should be limited to these four categories. Um, the other moves will say we should be more and more egalitarian, that we should include uh, belief categories. So, for example, people's political beliefs um, or maybe uh, uh, their, their languages that they speak. You know, so these are the interesting tensions. And I think it's important to think about it in these two ways. The one is what is the philosophical character of, of, of how we do this? And the other one is what should we be prohibiting through the force of the law? Well, indeed, I mean, these are clearly very tough questions that I'm not going to be in a position to uh, to um, settle. But I'm quite, so I think that we should have one, in terms of the legal situation, I think that we should have one legal category that is about incitement to something like hatred or violence. But that isn't necessary. I mean, that may be done um, through hate speech, if you like, but that I think that perpetrating hate speech is a different type of harm or different legal, should be treated differently in law. And I think in lots of legal contexts, that already is the case. I mean, I think that the reason why incitement to violence tends to be very much connected to the idea of hate speech comes from the American context where, um, according to their sort of legal parameters, it's extremely difficult to, um, to regulate speech. And one of the reasons, of course, um, is by demonstration of harm, but the demonstration of harm needs to be extremely, in a sense, um, serious and there the incitement um, to violence or the, the disturbance of peace is usually appealed to. But I don't think that that's necessarily either from a philosophical or legal point of view a particularly good idea. I think that incitement is one thing and perpetrating hate speech is another. But I think that one of the, so I'm quite um, persuaded by um, a definition that comes from um, David Brink, and he very much draws this from an American context whereby an expression qualifies as hate speech if it um, satisfies four um, criteria or four conditions. And one is that it employs um, some stigmatizing words or fighting words like racist epithets, for instance. And it's addressed to a sort of a captive audience. So it's kind of directly addressed to some targets. So it's to, to avoid being the target of hate speech. And you can, it's insulting and stigmatizing um, in a sense that it's, it should, it would be experienced as insulting and stigmatizing um, by reasonable people who are targets of that kind of speech. And the speaker sort of intends and foresees it to be insulting and stigmatizing. So if we have this kind of view, it doesn't need to incite violence or somehow disturb the peace. So we, we sort of are distinguishing the the incitement from, from the perpetration of hate speech. And one other issue, of course, is in terms of groups. Um, it might be that um, if you, you know, take the sort of the dirty fin example, 
well, this if this is not just sort of some kind of, um, it's not traditionally seen as a fighting word or it's not a derogatory, um, it's not a case of derog derogation, um, then it might not qualify as hate speech. Either and it, of course, in, in some sense, if in certain cases you would say that to a Finn, they might, you know, is it is it reasonable for a Finn to find that offensive or not? I mean, that these are going to be very contextually specific decisions and, and and that we're making. It looks like there has to be some, perhaps some history of discrimination, some history of oppression, which then sort of comes into play when we're deciding which groups are the ones that, in a sense, are targets of hate speech proper as opposed to some other form of discriminatory speech, for instance. So I wonder about going down that road of a history of discrimination against the group. On the one hand, in other words, we can say it seems that when you've had a violent action against people, it's it, it has tended to be on the grounds of a groupiness. And so, you know, protecting people against that kind of speech seems important. Um, but sometimes it's the first time that a group gets persecuted. So if we think about Rwanda, it's not clear that there was a long history of persecution on, on ethnic grounds. It erupts quite quickly. And so you might want to have a general norm that isn't historically sensitive uh, and doesn't try and elevate a particular group or entrench some kind of, well, th these particular people are worthy of a greater protection and these people aren't. Um, often what you found as well is that economically powerful groups uh, in a society are the ones that get that get exterminated. Do you think we should be taking into account some kind of privilege Olympics hierarchy of different groups? Or do we say, no, we're going to assume some level of equality and we're going to apply our norms in a more general manner? So I certainly would not be sort of advocating for any kind of sort of oppression versus privilege Olympics. But I think the, the case of the Rwanda case is interesting because I do think that there are historical factors there that come into place. And you're right that there was a long history where there wasn't under kind of thinking in terms of ethnic groups that then ultimately led to the, to the genocide. But there was a past colonial past that quite intentionally created group tensions in order to benefit the colonial masters. And so I do think that there we are talking about um, historical forms of privilege and discrimination and, and um, subordination. But I mean, then uh, the issue with the rich is in some sense, I feel that, of I mean, intuitively, I feel that there's, there's nothing about saying bad things about the rich, but of course, this is not very philosophically <laughs> a or systematic way of thinking about it. Um, I mean, what would be the insulting fighting words there that um, we could be using against the rich? I mean, from it doesn't seem that there are sort of very well-established epithets in play. Of course, we could just use um, some other forms of derogation, like sort of the dirty rich um, kind of cases. But it's not clear to me that this, again, wouldn't just be some form of offence or intended as offensive speech that nonetheless then falls short of the, the definition of hate speech that I think we should be working with. So I suppose that, I mean, there's there's two ways of thinking about this rich question. The one is, you know, you have a tagline like eat the rich, right? Um, which is itself a call to action uh, or, you know, sort of political claims about saying the rich don't, don't deserve what they have, you know, all property is theft. So they're categorized as a class. The other one is to say that the Jews in our society seem to have more money than everyone else. Uh, and you then vilify them and they happen to be rich. So it does seem that the kind of category we're talking about is different. I know the Anatolians in in Turkey um, tended to be wealthier. Uh, Jews in Nazi Germany also had a tendency to be wealthier. And then that is used against them for further vilification purposes. And you might think that's different to a kind of generic claim about eat the rich. Um, but I also wonder, how do you draw a principal distinction between these things? How do you say, well, it's okay for us to hit this class of people and say what we like about them, um, maybe it's that it's 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 a temporary status. In other words, we might think that these traditional categories like race, religion, sex are more fixed, that they're immutable characteristics in a way that your financial situation can fluctuate. Uh, is that a principled way of drawing distinction? I'm not sure that I would um, say that it's, there's a principled distinction between hate speech and other types of speech such that there's no nothing problematic about um, saying something um, derogatory about the rich. 
or some other group that is historically privileged. I think that there are lots of speech that is problematic. Um, I think they're problematic in different ways um, and the harms are going to be different and our responses to those speech um, will be different. So in the cases where we might have some kind of vilification of the rich, for instance, I certainly don't think that in any way an appropriate response here would be to say that there's anything regulable in terms of law when it comes to these cases. And often there's also, I do think, a, a political, um, there's a sort of political background, which means that some of the, the these kinds of claims um, should be seen as safe, for instance, to eat the rich. I think that's actually part of political speech. And I think in that sense, it has a very different type of status than just straightforward vilification of a group. I don't think that just because something isn't a case of hate speech in a very narrow sense, that there isn't anything problematic about it, and that we shouldn't maybe take sometimes a step back and think before we speak. But that is very far from any kind of idea that there's a there's a law or legal regulability about uh, what we're talking about. So I want to uh, probe this part of your account that there's this distinction between what should be regulated by law and what is immoral or is in some way problematic. Um, now, someone might say to, to call certain speech problematic or immoral doesn't have any bite to it. Um, and so it's unlikely to stop that speech. What we want is to regulate any kind of speech that is problematic or immoral. And, and you might say, well, um, it doesn't seem like it should go all the way to being banned, but um, they'll say, but hold on, what you're trying to defend is speech that hurts people, that hurts them emotionally, or perhaps has other consequences that are not just emotional consequences. And why should we protect that kind of speech anyway? Um, why not just have a nice, friendly society where everyone only says nice things to each other? I wish we could have a nice, friendly society where everybody just says nice things to each other. This is this is very much an empirical question, and perhaps I'm I'm simply um, misguided about the empirical um, facts here. But sometimes it seems that having a sort of a law against something, so say that there is some kinds of speech codes, is not going to be very conducive to creating this nice, friendly society where everyone's nice to one another. But if you actually get people to see how speech can be harmful and how it can generate certain forms of exclusion um, and feelings of, sort of silencing and so on. I think that that might actually have a more powerful effect in getting people to think about what they're saying rather than saying something like, well, we should just have these speech codes and, and you're not allowed to say something or um, you, you should be somehow um, censored in certain type of speech. I mean, I think that laws do have these kinds of functions of telling people what's appropriate and what isn't appropriate. Sometimes the law is not the best instrument for getting that across. And I do think that there's much more to be done already in the level of a sort of education when we're dealing with, with children um, and trying to sort of some, some sense educate citizens to see the other's point of view. And as opposed to this being sort of a case of I'm... I'm simply allowed to say whatever because we have free speech. And another thing that Stanley Fish famously has said is there is no such thing as free speech and it's a good thing too. So there is something problematic about just saying whatever kind of comes to your mind. So I suppose on this front, we need to think firstly, why does free speech matter? You know, why protect it at all? And especially when it comes to things that we say, but this is a false idea. Uh, and so John Stuart Mill has this view that you've got a marketplace of ideas and one way to test the truth of things is to have false things floating around so that you can sharpen your sword against them and that both sides win. The person who holds the false view can revise their view in the light of the truth and the other person might truly understand why they why they believe what they believe because it's had to confront falsehood. And then I think also you point out a backfire effect problem. So if you legislate against certain kinds of speech, you give them enormous power. So if you say to people that this symbol or this word is banned, you know, well, then the person who's willing to say it, you know, can become a martyr, uh, they can attract enormous uh, protection for it. So for example, in South Africa, we had, you know, apartheid from 1948 until 1994. And there was a, a flag that that reigned from 1928 until 19, 1994. And uh, that flag has sort of been seen as a flag that is a symbol of apartheid. And um, one of our courts 
um, banned that flag. And it immediately had a backfire effect, which is that people who had no prior interest whatsoever in displaying that flag suddenly changed their online avatars to it um, and said, you know, if you're going to suppress this part of South African history, um, which is a complicated history, well, we'll show you. And so suddenly the symbol, which had basically been sort of tossed on the ash heap of history, now becomes an important symbol of dissent. And, and you find that it becomes quite hard to eradicate words um you know i think some people take the view if everybody just stops saying the racial slur well then we'll end racism i don't think it works like that i think what happens is you drive it underground you wind up with radicalized echo chambers and that has severe social costs i also then wonder about social regulation as opposed to legal regulation so mill warns about this sort of tyranny of the majority where we say there are certain things that you just don't say and there will be social sanctions for them. And we've seen an enormous rise in this. So, you know, in America where you've got enormous legal protections for your speech, the social sanctions seem high. People lose their jobs. They get, um, you know, publicly vilified on, on you know, online platforms and shamed. Uh, and often the norms adjust very, very rapidly. So it's quite hard for someone to know in advance whether they're going to say something that's decided to be hate speech. Especially if we think about a clash between uh, feminist movements and uh, transgender movements. I would say 10 years ago, if a woman said, it's very important that there are um, spaces for, for women's bodies that are women's bodies alone. Um, prisons, women's shelters, bathrooms, that would have been seen as a completely non-controversial thing to have said, and maybe even a progressive thing to have said. Now it's the kind of thing that's seen as transphobic and bigoted. And one might be held liable for a statement made 10 years ago now on today's standards. So how do you get that social regulation right? If you accept there's certain speech that the state ought not to be interfering in, how do you have a culture around free speech so that people are able to tolerate ideas that they don't like without resorting to these hard tactics of shames and firing campaigns? So I think one thing that's important in the the Mill case that you mentioned and the, and the idea that there's, a, there's this marketplace of ideas is that people don't people seem to sort of assume that we arrived at this marketplace with the same what I tend to call purchasing power as if we all sort of enter this marketplace and then we just sort of debate out our ideas and 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 so forth and this is one of the ways in which where I where I think people should be more educated and should be thinking about this more carefully is that to realize that we don't arrive at that marketplace on an equal footing so there are already background structures of um, privilege and subordination and discrimination in place. And some people will simply have more power. They simply have more purchasing power on that marketplace. And so there, I think, the th so what, what worries me is that um, often these debates sort of end up being, in that sense, I think fruitless in these sorts of controversial cases is that, is that people simply forget that, that I think many of these debates are not about exactly what's being said at some particular instant, but also understanding that what you are saying is about a group of people who already are, have experienced, who have a long background, who have long-standing uh, position of relative um, oppression or subordination. The speech has to be seen in a context and the context of structures of power and privilege. And these are the issues that, where I think social sanctions and what the hopefully some form of social education would be doing is is getting people to understand that not all speech is on a par but rather it has the power to really uh, magnify and amplify certain um, structural relations of power and privilege so we we've had discussions around this um, that are similar with some other guests on our show um, one of one of the the problems with that sort of approach is that you can land up with um, a worse implication than if you were to criminalize that speech. If your mechanism for controlling that kind of speech is through social approbation or public shaming or public silencing of those who are perceived as having higher status or um, more privilege. And, and trying to give a voice to those who are seen as structurally oppressed, you can get some very strange outcomes. And those outcomes don't always track with what is best for everyone involved. Public shaming has, has a number of, of problematic consequences. One, one of the problems is that it's not regulated uh, in a way that the law is. So there isn't a due process that, that, that happens. And so you can have people who are incorrectly vilified 
and perhaps not proportionately to their crime. So they say something and they're vilified in a way that destroys their entire livelihoods um, and can affect their families. Um, and perhaps they didn't deserve to be vilified at all or not in that way. So I, I would have a problem with using social approbation to control speech that you don't feel that the state should control. So are you, we're talking, I think, um, social approbation or some forms of social shaming. Um, I think the internet, Twitter, social media has made a huge difference to that. And I don't agree that we should be um, involved in this sort of Twitter wars and, and socially um, vilifying people online and, and engaging in, in what I think basically is harassment um, on social media. I would have hoped. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I'm I'm sort of worried about speech in general, and wish that they, we would have. I mean, some of these more educational type um, responses, as opposed to legal responses, is that I think people seem to be behaving really badly online in social media when there is uh, sort of the the shroud of anonymity that comes with it, and these are the kinds of cases where I really wish that people would stop and think more you know before before they do something um, and so i absolutely agree that that these kinds of social mechanisms of social shaming um i don't agree with them having said that um i when i i was before i went came to amsterdam i was at oxford and oxford had a, a very has a very historically well-known oxford um union debates and they did invite um people like steve bannon um, and other other sort of other people who's who's who I don't think should really be given a very prestigious platforms in this kind, and I do think that there it does make a difference whether we are then um, trying to deplatform somebody like Steve Bannon rather than engaging in some form of social shaming on online or in social media, which would um, have those effects that Jason you've just been talking about. Your account around power imbalances is an interesting one. And I think there probably was a lot to be said for it in a pre-social media era. So if you have, you know, a few very wealthy people who own uh, a lot of newspapers, kind of William Randolph Hearst, you know, it becomes very hard to battle in the, in the marketplace of ideas, you know, as a minority voice. I think what we found is that that's changed dramatically. So now it's become... Uh, democratized anyone can sort of have their say online they can express their view and what we've seen really is that very vocal minority groups are able to get uh, an enormous amount done so if we think about uh, the transgender community for example it is a very small community you know in other words less than a few percent but have managed to get an enormous amount of traction in mainstream media around discussions around trans rights so we might find that that power imbalance that you have has shifted quite dramatically. In other words, because people are able to socially gather, they can express their views, they can you know, do it in unison, and we might be less worried about the imbalances in power. But you touch on something else that I think is very interesting, which is what roles universities should be playing in terms of providing people with platforms. And it seems that as a university, you don't owe anyone a particular right to speak. In other words, I can't demand that Oxford host me, but, once a university has an extended invitation, and we might think that universities, which are meant to be these bastions of free speech, of controversial ideas, people can clash their swords, especially the Oxford Union, which had a history of having debates on topics that people are going to clearly disagree with. You know, you had people sort of taking views on, on should we have slavery again? You know, and the idea is you clash these swords. Once you've extended that invitation, and now you're put under pressure uh, to remove the guests, that strikes me as a very good reason not to remove the guests. In other words, if this is meant to be a space where we can engage with dangerous ideas and people that we disagree with, submitting to pressure either from the public or to students seems like a way of eroding the value of those institutions. I, I have much, perhaps a more um, critical and skeptical view of this. I, I find that often there seems to be when people who are very controversial figures are invited um, to prestigious um, places to speak, um, it seems to me that this might be something that those organizers themselves are, um, are trying to, they're trying to get visibility for themselves. So in other words, there's a sort of a way in which this type of controversial speakers are used for, for people's own self-interest as opposed to 
any kind of an interest that we might have in speech, that it is there to facilitate democratic functioning or that it serves some form of democratization um, role or function or the kind of things that Mill, George, John Stuart Mill talked about where we are kind of clashing ideas and, and trying to, to get to the truth. And this, in a sense, is again, perhaps one of the reasons why I'm a little bit worried about the way that that speech um, is happening and also the way that social media speech is happening is that often also people will just, the idea, I mean, speech being this kind of just a way to provoke a reaction. And I've sometimes even heard people saying things like, well, um, we have a right to offend others. Um, I don't think we have a right to offend others. I don't think this is what um, free speech is there to do. Um, I don't think that this is some, some form of um, a right that we possess as citizens. Here are, again, I mean, why I sort of just feel very much the pull of the idea that, you know, think first and, and speak, speak later. So I, I want to I push back on the right to offend. I, I, firstly, I just want to understand what you mean by that, that we don't have this right. Are you saying that we don't have this right legally or in some moral sense, that we don't have this, this right in a deontological sense? So assuming some sort of deontological theory of morality, that our actions must comport with some system of duties, um, that one of those duties is to not, a, not offend, um, if that's your view. I'm just, I'm just curious which one you think is the correct view, the legal view or the moral view. So this, of course, depends a little bit on the people who, who think that we have this kind of right. The idea is that within a sort of a legal framework, um, you don't have the right to prevent people from offending. So this would be in the sense that you have a free speech. Um, so we, shouldn't, we could, couldn't have something like banning of offensive speech in a legal framework. And insofar as that's the case, then you have, in a sense, a right, right to offend. But the idea, I think, is that it's probably very much tied to a sort of a moral, a sort of a moral come legal idea that also um, nobody has a, we don't have some kind of non-interference um, claims against being offended. Goes again back to Mill. John Stuart Mill has the idea, of course, that um, offence is not a reason to prescribe speech because it doesn't harm in the in the right kind of way. So, in a sense. It, it harms, it may be um, odious, um, but that's not the kind of harm that would um, underwrite any free speech restrictions. So I just want to clarify then. So you're saying that we don't have a right to offend, but people do not have a right to prevent us from offending. Is that correct? Sorry, I think this is prevent not my view. So I'm, I'm sort of, I feel that... <laughs> I think that we we shouldn't we shouldn't go out uh, out of our way intentionally offending people. Um, I mean, I think that there are for reasons of just decency, cooperation, democratic functioning. There are lots of um, on these kinds of grounds. Um, we don't have a, a right to offend others, and this is irrespective of whether there are any non-interference claims um, that we're making. So even if there are no such such claims, even if we don't have, in some sense, um, a claim not to be um, not to be offended, it doesn't mean that that gives someone a right to offend. So I'm going to take an even stronger view, which is I think we might have a moral obligation to offend. So not merely <laughs> a right, but that I think it is the right thing to do. And I'll give you a couple of examples. If you took the view that gay people should be allowed to get married, that would have been seen as incredibly offensive in most societies for a very long period of history. If you said that um, black people and white people should be allowed to have um, have children together, that would have been seen as very offensive. Uh, if you'd published innumerable um, novels and works of art over the years, many people would have been very offended by it. And I think it was the right thing to offend those people. I think a lot of stuff is offensive until people change their minds about it. And I think especially when you have a particular social view on things, you're going to entrench a status quo if you think you have some kind of obligation not to offend. I think it's important that people explore offensive ideas uh, because they often then change people's minds. You know, what's what's offensive 50 years ago is now totally normalized. Um, and I think we've got to bear that in mind. Unless you have some kind of objective account of what ought to be offensive, 
Um, if we think about offense as being a subjectively felt thing, someone says, I have disdain for that idea, or I find that yucky or gross, and so therefore, um, you know, you shouldn't be offending me and you don't have the right. As I say, I think some people really have an obligation to do it. It's how you have social change. But is it is it what they're really doing first and foremost offending though? I do I feel I feel that the offense is some is a is a sort of a side product of um, a certain other political project. I mean I feel that if you are some if if we are let's say um, fighting for a right to uh, for same sex couples to marry, I find it I don't think that the first and foremost the people who are go who are sort of driving this political movement think, oh, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to be really, I'm going to be sort of, I have the right to offend. What they're trying to do is they're trying to uh, retain some um, structural change, which will then have offensive consequences. Sure. But I'm not sure I think the first and foremost, the driving background, um, moral, like whatever it is, moral or come political, legal um, ideals that we have are that we've got, we've We've got a moral obligation now to offend um, the powers that be or whatever the status quo is. Well, I, I think it's worth cashing out that difference in uh, intention. In other words, the one is to reconcile oneself to the fact that the person listening to this will be offended and doing it anyway. And the other one is to go out and do it deliberately. I think doing it deliberately, in other words, saying not only do I know this person will be offended, but that's what I want is sometimes going to be the right thing to do. So... If you think about someone like Robert Maplethorpe, you know, one of um, the greatest photographers of all time, some of that work is subversive on purpose. You know, um, you have very sexually explicit imagery of gay couples together engaged in S&M scenes. Uh, there's a famous exhibition of his work that was done just after he died in 1991 at a very prominent gallery in New York. And part of that is to sort of rattle people, to make them feel to their core some sense of offense. And those uh, curators were arrested um, by Giuliani at the time on the grounds that, you know, this goes against public morals. Now, I think those people did something praiseworthy by having the exhibition. And as I say, in the face of proper injustice, you might think that you need to go and rattle some cages. You need to make people feel offended because that's how you can open up discussions. And I think you'll see that a lot of social change really is with that in mind, not merely going I'm going to reconcile myself to the fact that some people aren't going to like what I'm doing. You're saying I'm deliberately going to offend because I know that'll have very good consequences. I mean, interestingly enough, that is also what um, sort of early sort of pornographers in the United States, so people like Hugh Hefner, Larry Flint, I mean, these are exactly the kinds of ideas. I mean, let's just sort of um, go out and, and tackle the kind of the, the sexual, what was seen as a very um, um, old-fashioned and... and um, and, a, and sort of um, conservative America, let's let's rattle some cages. So I do, I see, I see your point. I think there is again, however, I feel that um, the power imbalances here might be coming into play. I think there is a difference in the kind of offensiveness when we're talking about people who are from a powerful group offending those who are coming from groups where that are already have some form suffering from some form of structural background um, oppression or, or discrimination and then those who are in a sense relative relatively powerless then sort of standing up to the relatively powerful ones and i do think that in this case it's not on a part these cases are not on a part there's offense or offensiveness can be used as a way of fight you know fighting the power so to speak um so somehow it's rattling the cages and trying to stand up against the system of oppression that one is facing but i think it's very different for those who are in positions of power to then engage in being offensive um towards people who already are um, inhabiting some relative position of powerlessness i, I want to echo a point mark made earlier which is that those those power dynamics are incredibly unclear today um, what you find is minorities have much more say um, in an online world and that um, people who previously would have been perceived as having greater power are um, scrutinized uh, far more so than previously. It, it seems like if you are a white cisgendered man, um, that previously would have been considered and still is considered by most people as um, being a person in a position of privilege you are also uh, simultaneously under far greater scrutiny 
if you were to utter certain statements uh, that someone not in your position were to utter, you would get into more trouble. That, that line that we need to examine power structures in order to assess whether any given um, offense is acceptable, that doesn't seem so clear anymore. Um, and yeah, I, I, I just don't feel like that's a useful uh, framework any longer. It, as Mark said, it may have been prior to what we've seen as a wave of progressive thought, but nowadays it doesn't seem to be as useful. So I disagree about the, the power structures or the, the way that you described it just there. I mean, I think that it is one, one, there's one question of who has, if you like, the upper hand and who's powerful in an online discussion. There's another issue about what are the material conditions in which people find themselves. So, for instance, if you think that the sort of the trans community is very powerful online because they have a big presence, well, they're not very materially powerful um, than in in lots of other areas. And in fact, they are uh, powerless. And if you think about, so for instance, um, in the United States, some few years ago, there was a, a large report about what the material conditions of trans people are. And, and I mean, the fact is that, for instance, uh, in the trans community, um, trans people commit suicide at a much, and I mean, radically much higher rate than in non-trans communities. Um, homelessness is is extremely high relative to the size of the of the community. All sorts of, you know, workplace discrimination. These are various kinds of material uh, ways in which people are oppressed. I mean, this doesn't suggest to me that we're talking about a group that is powerful. We're talking about a group that is still extremely marginalized um, and whether there is sort of a big, let's call it social media presence, I don't think can serve as a proxy of powerfulness when we're talking about sort of social structural power and privilege. So a couple of things on this. I think on the one hand, there's this empirical question about trying to measure the amount of power that certain groups have. Um, and it seems like it's going to fluctuate. And as you say, you can have be powerful in one sector, but powerless in other sectors. And that seems like something worth taking into account. But there's something else that I wonder about, which is whether we should be agnostic about claims entirely. And all that you care about is some kind of equality of arms. And that's it. So in other words, if you say, well, at the moment, it seems like, uh, you know, gay men are really prospering and um, they're in a conflict with uh, trans men. So and trans men are not prospering very well. So then we just need to change the power. Oh, it looks like the, the things have reversed. So now we need to, you know, give more arms to the other side. And all you care about is just creating ties and battlefields. Um, and that you don't, you're agnostic about who has a better claim or a worse claim. Uh, you just want to make sure that everybody comes out in some final state of equality. Or whether you think, no, there are certain other ways in which we can evaluate this. It's not just about power and privilege, which, as we can point out, just fluctuate wildly, um, you know, based on historical questions or based on wh which part of the world you live in. So are you just committed towards, let's get ties? So I don't think about um, justice in terms of this kind of equality, that as long as we've got sort of everyone's got some particular percentage of, of whatever wealth or, or power or whatever privilege, however we measure it, then we've got social justice. I think about, I don't think the um, social justice is about the outcomes in this sense. Um, I mean, thinking about, again, the sort of cases of speech. So it's not... It might be that there are some communities who are very vocal, let's say, in, in the social media sphere or even in the media. Um, that doesn't mean that they're being listened to. And this is, in a sense, going back to the idea of the marketplace of, the, of ideas is you, we can all come to the marketplace of ideas and we can all say what we you know, have to say, but people don't necessarily have to listen to you. And of course, there are various views. We might say that, OK, there's no... A there's no such thing as, as kind of a duty to be listened to. But there are ways in which whether your claims are being taken seriously, whether your claims are then being belittled, whether your claims are just taken as simply straightforwardly as, as not credible. I mean, these are all issues that then come back to the sort of the marketplace of ideas idea that we don't all have the same purchasing power. So even if you shout, if you like, the loudest, that doesn't mean that you somehow will be listened to the most. We touched briefly on uh, on the role of pornography. And so you often had pornographers being these 
champions in the fight for free speech, uh, sometimes inadvertently. So they would be the ones who would be prosecuted. Um, and because of that, they would then have to uh, spend an enormous amount of their own money defending their right to publish the content of what they were publishing. Are there parallels between hate speech and pornography? How would we draw those parallels out? Are there certain kinds of pornographic material that you think ought to be banned or ought to be visited with social program? Or do we see pornography as this this interesting space for pushing out you know, dangerous ideas or changing people's views on aesthetics or about desire and about love? So I don't think a lot of industrial pornography is not like that, for sure. I think um, art would be more sort of fulfilling that 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 role that, that you were talking about as pushing dangerous ideas. So one of the three things in way, ways in which I think about hate speech and pornography is not being on a par is that I think the way we dis- distinguish what is hate speech from other types of prejudicial speech is in terms of what is being said and not um, in terms of what are the consequences of this are. It might be that um, both hate speech and um, discriminatory speech can be equally offensive to the targets, but I don't think that, in a sense, collapses the, um, the distinction. My view about pornography, however, is that pornography isn't just about what's being said, but it's also, in a sense, what's being done with pornography. So pornography tends to have much more of uh, certain kinds of performative aspects. So it gives certain types of messages or images or ideas about sex and these sex have um, sort of do have real world consequences so that pornography generates sexual scripts and and especially with younger um, viewers who who just don't have very much experience with sex there's a sort of a sense in which pornography tells us what sex ought to be like and then these scripts are sort of played out in the real world and I think that they're in a so I think pornography certainly can um, have both positive and negative um, sexual scripts. So I think that it can be a force for good or a force for, for bad, but it's much more of something that pornography is, is a kind of speech that does something in the world. It affects people in, in certain kinds of ways that then um, is much more sort of seen in, in our behavior. So, so echoing what you said um, about Steve Bannon, would you, would you say that we should de-platform certain pornographers? Um, certain pornography studios. So you did mention consequences, but you also said what is being done. Um, so if there's certain types of pornography that you feel would convey um, bad messaging, uh, would you want to remove those types of pornography? Yes, basically, absolutely. Um, I don't have any problem with deplatforming certain certain pornographers and certain um, certain uh, pornographic uh, representations. Having said that, I think that deplatforming and this perhaps sort of going back to the idea again of marketplace of ideas, the solution isn't somehow to just deplatform pornography, but the solution is also to encourage um, pornographic representations that are based on um, equality and, and that aren't um, pushing for um, inegalitarian um, sexual scripts. You know, when you when you said deplatform Steve Bannon, the hairs in the back of my neck started to prickle. But when you said deplatform pornographers, they they really stood up, um, and not in a good way. I, I I start to think, well, you know, there's a series of questions that would be asked, and you know, we we don't have time to cover to cover all of this, but it's a very interesting topic. But few of the questions that come to mind are by what standards? So, you know, would you have this Bureau of uh, Pornographic Censors uh, who sit there and say, well, you know, there's, there's, there's too many dicks in this, in this scene. It's not egalitarian enough. We need more vaginas. Uh, there's too many black people in this scene. We need more white people. Too many white people need more black people. Uh, there's, not, there's not enough people of color. There's not enough poly people represented in this scene. We need more monogamous people in this one, polyamorous people in that one. It just seems a bit absurd, right? And I think it's such a great counterexample to your view generally that you should deplatform things that don't meet some standard of egalitarianism, which seems really arbitrary. But again, I don't think when it comes to um, pornography, again, I think that power plays a huge role. And one of the things that it does is it's not, I think it's a mistake to think about pornography just in terms of looking at what is being depicted. It's not about the depictions that matters. It's about um, also to do with various forms of um, working conditions. This is part of why I think certain pornography should be deplatformed. The idea isn't that um, we should somehow deplatform all pornography that 
perhaps depicts some forms of, of subordination. So say something like BDSM. There is a sort of a sense in which these um, representations can be used to celebrate or endorse um, forms of subordination. It's, it's not about just taking imagery sort of transparently. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm much less skeptical about the idea that you could distinguish between um, various types of pornography in, in the way that, that, that I mentioned. And there's, there's plenty of people who are in more the sort of fair trade and feminist pornography movements who've done seminars where, where I mean, they literally show like, well, here is a, here is a sort of a clip of sort of run of the mill sort of pornography tropes, the ways in which bodies are positioned. And here is a sort of the feminist um, fair trade version. And you really can see a quite a quite a substantial and a stark contrast in the ways in which bodies are presented and in the ways in which the, you know, I mean, especially with heterosexual pornography, the male and female performers are are being filmed and and um, and depicted in the Sure, but but I may just not be turned on by the feminist-friendly pornography. And it seems like I should have a right, A, to watch the porn that turns me on, and B, the people creating that pornography should have a right to create it, provided, uh, you know, everyone is paid for it and everyone does so with their consent. It seems like they should have a right to create that pornography and I should have a right to view it. But why would you, I mean, do you not think that there might be something like we should, this Aristotelian idea that we should cultivate good erotic tastes. And so if you are turned on by some really, really run-of-the-mill, you know, big corporate sort of porn hub, sort of very lazy pornography tropes, the, you know, the pizza delivery man and all the rest of it, do you not think that, okay, so that might turn me on, but there's something really, really deeply um, sort of um, lacking in, in my kind of sexuality. Maybe I should try to somehow cultivate my erotic tastes in a sort of better way. And this, in a way, it's kind of coming back to the to the speech issues. This that it's it's this is a little bit my the pornographic sort of analog of when I say people should stop and think before they speak. Well, people should really stop and think a lot more about the kind of pornography that they're consuming. I don't know. I think that's an archaic view that just isn't echoed by modern psychology. So you know, Aristotle may have taken that view, and you know. I, our archaic institutions have taken that view, religious institutions have taken that view that our sexuality is something we can cultivate in certain ways. And But, you know, if you hold that view and you were to tell that view to the trans people who you're trying to protect and people in the LGBT community, they would take great offense at that view because that's exactly the position that was held and pushed in order to say, well, you know, these people don't need to like these things. Um, and I think part of what Mark was getting at earlier was that we want to put in people's faces the diversity of people's sexual preferences and their intellectual preferences in the free speech um, debate, exactly because we want to show people that there is an enormous diversity in what people enjoy, not so that we can cultivate what they think and what, they, what they're attracted to, but because we want people to see that it's okay to believe and want whatever they believe and want. Um, and, you know, not okay in the sense that it's always morally okay, but that people have desires and people have thoughts. And it is important that those thoughts and desires are out there in the world so that others can comment on them. And sometimes those comments will be negative and that's fine. Um, but I, I doubt you can, through a selective uh, pressure on, on Pornhub change whether people are attracted to people with three breasts. You know, it's, I, I, you know, if you remove all images of people with three breasts, I don't think those who have that preference for people with three breasts will suddenly stop having them. Um, you know, suppressing certain types of preferences won't remove those preferences from people's minds. I mean, I, I think I, I disagree very much about how people's preferences are formed. And I do think that this, in a sense, is part of the whole idea of cultivation of um of desire that i don't think i don't think we're, we're in a situation at the moment where um people just simply have these preferences and then they go to Pornhub and then they go and you know look my preferences here are being catered for especially given the sort of what we know about um how early people start watching pornography um, and what um how much i mean how ubiquitous internet pornography is i think that many of our preferences are formed 
in this in 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 response to the kind of pornography that that is out there. And for instance, these are the sorts of cases that also get discussed um, in dating apps. That it seems that we see very clearly. People notice, oh, I have some kind of a, a racialized preference, or, or and and they're actually horrified by this because they didn't think about themselves as having some kinds of um, racial preferences, or or rather not having certain preferences and thinking that they are sort of a perfectly um, equal opportunity daters, but realizing that that there is some um, some ethnic or racial group that they they sort of consistently sort of keep rejecting. It, it doesn't seem to me uh, that in this case we should just sort of put our hands up and say, oh, well, people have their preferences. We should be open to the idea that maybe the preferences we have have been are a sort of a reflection of um, various, again, structures of power and privilege, which are shaping the, the kinds of desires and preferences that we have. And we should sort of actively try to overcome those. You see, Jason, if we can just get you to watch enough straight pornography, we can change this dirty homosexual preference that you have. And if we can just get you to view the right stuff, in other words, if we have our pornography czar in government that knows exactly. what the correct pornography is for you to watch, we can eradicate whatever things you think are your preference, you know, the sort of false consciousness that you have, and we can get you to be a good citizen. This is what worries me is it seems like they're different approaches. I, I buy that you could really cultivate tastes. So for example, let's say you like bad wine. And I say, well, if you learn a little bit about wine, you'll appreciate all this variety. And you know that might be a good way for people to kind of enjoy the finer things in life, like with literature and with art and with pornography. You might say, well, you're watching this sort of middle of the road pornography and it's you know there's better stuff out there. Let me expose you to that. And there's two ways to go about it. The one is the sort of state perfectionist line where we say we must eradicate the stuff that is subpar. And the other one is, you know, the marketplace of ideas line where you say, okay, well, let's just expose people to this variety. I mean, one of the interesting things about pornography is how broad it is, how egalitarian it is in the sense that whatever weird preference you have, there's pornography out there that has it. Um, and what's interesting about it is there's actually good data on it. So Pornhub, for example, released an annual survey where they can show you, you know, what women search for, what people in South Carolina search for. And some of those preferences are very surprising. In 2019, the second most searched term was alien. So there's a huge sort of line of, um, you know, people dressing up like comic book characters and having that in pornography. It, there does seem to be a dialogue that goes on between people's innate preferences, which sometimes are going to be quite fixed, and sometimes the pornography creating those preferences. And I think we're going to find that in all sorts of realms of art. I just wonder about this idea of wanting to remove certain things. And I think there's a distinction to be drawn between saying, we remove content where you abuse the people in the, in the making. In other words, if you uh, force someone against their will or maybe you have problems with certain working conditions, that seems like a, a different kind of reason for regulation than I don't like the moral view this expresses or I don't think this is aesthetically appealing and therefore it should be removed. So I, don't, um, I think that there are... So one of the, one of the things that um, is problematic, um, especially with the pornography industry, is that uh, lots of lots and lots of so-called um, amateur pornography. It's not really amateur. These are people who have, uh, especially women who have never done any pornography before, and they go for their first shoot, or they go for their trial or whatever. This gets them, you know, you sign away your rights. This gets then put on Pornhub and all these various um, platforms. And it looks amateuristic because the people haven't previously been involved in the, in the pornography industry. And a huge, huge, huge percentage of these women never go back for another shoot because they thought that it was not um, a pleasant experience, even if they haven't been sort of in any way sort of coerced or abused into it. I think this is a sort of not quite straightforwardly a case where we've got really um, abuse in the sort of strong sense, in which case we've got good reasons to remove certain certain type of uh, material, but also that there is something which sort of the, the aesthetic, it's, it's also not objectionable just on the basis of aesthetic in that there's, there's um, certain ways in which um, old school, tired uh, pornography tropes are being just perpetrated. But I don't see why, I, I, I find it really, I really struggle with the idea that there is something, something very beneficial about this sort of material that somehow means that we should, it, it deserves these very strong protections in the sense that we should, we shouldn't sort of take them down or that, that there shouldn't be some, um, some mechanism whereby, for instance, the people themselves who are involved 
would later on have a claim to say, I would like these materials to be removed from the web. Um, I you know, regret having done that, or I was not perhaps um, fully aware of, of the consequences or repercussions of it. That doesn't mean that we're banning these materials, but it doesn't mean that it's a sort of this libertarian um, sort of marketplace where we just absolutely everything goes. I do think that there are lots of shades in between sort of banning and not doing anything. Um, and something like having the power as someone who performs in, in those um, pieces of pornography to say later on, I would like this to be taken down, um, is I think a kind of form of form of intervention that I think we 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 should um, we should be open to and 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 allow. Well, Mario, this has been an absolutely delightful conversation. I've really enjoyed every minute of it. Um, it's so nice to uh, clash ideas and talk about you know uh, current topics through a strong philosophical lens. And uh, we look forward to having you back on the show sometime soon to talk about something uh, even more controversial if we can find it. Great, many thanks. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I want to talk about anything more controversial than this. But <laughs> thank you very much for having me.